All right. <clears throat> Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Today, maybe is going to be something a little different than what we often do on the podcast, at least for the podcast that I've gotten to participate in. Usually it's talking with a guest about something that I feel like is a topic that I know a decent amount about and the guest knows about. We're kind of just, you know, going through familiar territory and 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 highlighting things we think are important and that sort of thing. Um, I, what we're going to talk about today, I feel like, is something that I know very little about. It's very speculative, um, and so I'm not in a position to come in as any kind of an expert and, and you know and draw any boundaries around things. But it was prompted by um, some podcasts that I had been listening to. This is end of year 2023 stuff, and people are making their predictions about 2024. And um, you know, I'm sure I don't have a representative sample of podcasting because of all my biases and what I tend to gravitate to and listen to and what the algorithm feeds me, you know, so it's all that going in there. But, you know, if you want to find dire predictions, you can definitely find them nowadays. In the U.S., we're going into this election that's really contested and polarized. We're involved in multiple wars and with Ukraine and Russia and in the Middle East and so on. And there's saber rattling around conflict with Iran, saber rattling around conflict with China. And if you want to scare yourself um, about the near-term future, you certainly can find plenty of uh, uh, fodder, I think, for that. And so along those same lines, the podcast that I was listening to with, with this analyst, Whitney Webb, who's written a lot of really interesting stuff tracing corruption and blackmailing in the government. And she's like followed a lot of threads around people involved with Jeffrey Epstein and all that. If you're into that kind of intriguing stuff, then you basically have this huge... Uh, she's like an encyclopedia of stuff and her podcasts are pretty interesting. But one of the kind of predictions that she had seemed to make in some of the conversations that I listened to was that uh, what she called a kind of a cyber 9-11 event where there's a major sort of disruption somehow in the internet system, maybe affecting the banks or something like that with the idea that the powers that be want to, for example, eliminate privacy on the internet. They don't want people to be able to be anonymous. They want to know everyone's identity. Um, and the people that are backing AI and all this kind of stuff, they the, the slogan is data is the new oil. So they want data, 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 right. data. They want all our data, our biometric data, our financial data, what we look at online, what we purchase, all this kind of stuff. And if all of that could be put you know, through one single app to harvest all our data, to feed it into AI algorithms to use for whatever, for government or social control or whatever. I mean, this is where it gets really speculative and doomerish, right? But the idea that um, digital privacy is something that's maybe being attacked from above. And if you, the idea is if there is some major event like a 9-11, right? So 9-11 was like, oh, there's a terrorist event. Oh no, we have to respond. We have to pass the Patriot Act. And the Patriot Act had all this stuff about curbing civil liberties, setting up CIA torture programs and detaining people without um, due process and all this kind of stuff, all the horrible things. So she's positing that some kind of a cyber 9-11 will happen and be used as an excuse to feed us all, all our personal data into to AI algorithms. So this is like big, this is like my, my brain can't even really fit in all this kind of stuff. But I proposed a, a conversation on this podcast because uh, many of us are interested in uh, a life outside of being online all the time. Mm. 
being reliant on the cloud or or internet or whatever and in more in real life a lot of people are interested in in real life type of connections and activities and so it's probably worth talking about what do we what do we kind of see as the future of the internet if there's a major cyber 911 event or not what do we see as the future of the internet what do we see as the future of digital technology to what extent can we kind of choose how we want to engage with this stuff yep. versus are we going to feel just more compelled by circumstances? I mean, an example that pops to mind and, and I'll shut up in a second is uh, I guess a couple of years ago during COVID there was that protest by the truckers in Canada that they didn't want to have a mandate to have to get the vaccine. And so they had this peaceful protest where they drove their trucks to Ottawa and the government responded by clo by closing off people's access to their bank accounts yep. and freezing donations and stuff like that and putting all the people that made donations to the truckers on, you know, we can surveil you now. We, we see you're giving money to causes that we don't like, right? So they have a power to debank people potentially, right? And so if you're expressing views that are not approved of or something like that, then you might find yourself in some kind of trouble that way. And, uh, you know, that on one hand, that sounds totally insane. On the other hand, it sounds plausible to the extent that it's even kind of happened somewhat already. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, uh, I would just add, like, I'm, I'm not so convinced that there, if we're, we're just like talking through the assumptions of this conversation, um, I'm not so convinced that there's going to be like, like, again, one big moment potentially where you like maybe either lose access, but it could be this, um, it could be and already is this sort of haphazard um, uh, surveillance um, of people's online activities, um, haphazard, like putting people on lists. Um, and that's already happening. And so it's just important to think about like, you know, what kind of digital footprint do you want to have? If you, if you want less of a digital footprint, the assumption of this conversation for me is, like how to extract yourself from that um, obvious, obvious surveillance, um, obviously already happening surveillance. Um, and then like how, just how to think about that and how to like just practically move forward um, to have less of a digital footprint, more of a physical books. We were originally talking about like what books, what library, what, what should you have in your library? And like um, Donald, was talking about on the um, Doom or Optimism episode 200, like uh, this old model of zines that then get like distributed to people and then they just only like give them to their friends and you can only get it if you're like in that network. I like stuff like that. I would love to discuss different models, but my assumptions are basically like there's already surveillance happening. These digital footprints are already like something that, you know, we probably a lot of us want to extract ourselves from. Um, and I'm I'm always a doomer about the ongoing access to electricity and power. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, just literally like being able to turn your internet on because you lack power or generator or whatever. Um, so those are my assumptions going in. Donald, you, you, I know you didn't want to talk too much about the doomery assumptions. but Well, I guess I don't totally understand the set of assumptions here, because on the one hand, if we're talking about like um, not having electricity, then 
what's happening on the internet just doesn't it just doesn't matter you know like, but, but, uh, but to uh, have so, to have your reliance upon yes the yes i understand but i'm saying if the two concerns are uh government um observation of internet activity which doesn't seem like it, it seems like most people are very happy to keep elaborate public files on themselves it doesn't really seem to be a need for government surveillance because <laughs> we surveil each other and ourselves and put together like elaborate dossiers on ourselves um that seems to have become a, a social norm uh at this point so i don't even know what the like how <laughs> what would be the point of surveilling people because they you know it's just all they put it all out there so um and you know if like lacking access to banking and some sort of universal way i don't know i mean like la banking the failure like the disappearance of access to banking or electricity those are you know then that's too much the, those are calamities or problems on a much bigger scale that would make internet surveillance just be a total non i know but like i okay so I issue I had this old friend, um, this old Irish guy who who passed away was my neighbor in Uruguay, and he lived through plenty of periods and times where, like, you know, you would have to have cash in some sort of crisis situation, or you'd have to have yeah, sure. something to trade. So just thinking through, like, I guess the original name we had for this episode was digital prepping, but it's really like prepping with the hmm. with the assumption in mind that your digital life may not continue indefinitely like i know so many people who just don't have any cash at all so i i think actually in some ways my doom doom is even deeper than all of this i think that that um that dream i think that dreams of these sort of acute calamities are almost fantasies because they force action and they're really clear you know uh they and they make next steps actually they actually impose clarity mm -hmm. in a way because mm -hmm. then it's like okay you know then it's then becomes like food shelter or so on mm -hmm. um and so i think a lot about the idea of catabolic collapse which i know we've talked about but i think there's sort of intellectual catabolic collapse happening and that to me is the bigger doom mm -hmm. thing that digital life um I've been I've been reading essays by Jeffrey Hill, and he talks about um, <clears throat> how our you know current forms of education and communication uh, destroy our ability to attend to things, our attention and our memory, mm. and that to me, and when I think it's less a technical problem of how to like store digital files offline, mm -hmm. which is a pretty easy technical solution, I think. You can burn them on the DVDs or, heck, you can print them out and put them in binders, you know, things mm -hmm. like that. Uh, you know, you could print, like, thousands of pages for a couple hundred bucks if you wanted to and put them in three-ring binders. But to, the the bigger problem is the ability to actually attend to things as that are written which is disappearing mm. and two, the kind of relationships um, like intellectual relationships, friendships to share knowledge 
uh, and to um, to think through problems and to communicate. And to me, that in terms of prepping, that's the bigger. Just in the same way that like a lot of prepping is consumer therapy. It's like mm-hmm. filling your basement with stuff. Well, no, actually, the real thing is building friendships and skills and sharing together because that's what actually um pulls people through is not you know a basement full of stuff uh as you know like americans we love to buy stuff that's like the solution (laughs) to our problems but um so that's what i'm really i think about a lot of how you know to kind of rebuild our ability our our rebuild our attention and our memory um and how much has been forgotten in a relatively short amount of time. Like, I think our historical timescales keep getting shorter. Yeah. We're like the 1990s now. It's just like distant memory. Pre-2008 yeah. is this distant memory, much less, you know, having um, sort of access to the 19th century, 18th century, much, you know, even before then, like how, uh, but how important that is. So, and there's some people who are doing great things like, Christopher Schwartz, who some of you might know, Lost Art Press, he's a woodworker. He publishes these beautiful um, books and, he, and builds beautiful furniture. And, you know, he's done an amazing job of um, rediscovering the history of vernacular American and European furniture making and the tools people use and how they did them. And, you know, he and part of his discovery is discovering how much has been forgotten. You know, so there's people and we know we've talked to a lot of people who are doing the same thing in agriculture uh, or building. Um, and I think that that uh, there's something the same with just even in our language, you know, thinking like recovering the memory of our language and our poetry and um, and sort of rebuilding. Like the thing, Ashley, you and I are talking about rebuilding the Republic of Letters. Mm-hmm. So. That's what's been on my mind, and I'm sorry if that's no, no, that's... <laughs> a distraction from the other things. But I think that 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 the sort of the technical problem of preserving knowledge, humans have actually figured out quite well. Like paper, like we can that that private ownership of books, not like public li- libraries are actually very um, fragile forms of preserving knowledge because you get one fire or <laughs> flood or something, you gotta have knowledge distributed in privately yeah um, I, I also and, yeah i would just say like libraries they are also subject to like cultural whims and they'll throw out stuff yes. if it doesn't fit with the t- the culture of the time <clears throat> so donald you made a point that actually i think is a point of connection with stuff i heard whitney webb talking about which is a sort of cognitive decline that we can see happening shortening of attention span and kind of befuddlement that comes from interfacing with screens and and um and basically her assertion is like that this is not an accident it's kind of an intentional process to dumb us down to basically turn us into digital slaves to be mined for our data and 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 if if we're docile and we're dumb and we don't have critical thinking and we be, and we live in the metaverse you know and just accept government propaganda you know then we're a very controllable population and that's you know this is definitely like uh speculating about evil forces controlling society and stuff but <clears throat> that's kind of where where some of that conversation was going and um 
I feel like, I mean, we talk about things and joke about things like memes, like, oh, you're going to live in the pod and eat the bugs. Well, how are they going to get a person to live in a pod and eat bugs? Like, they're going to have to go to work on your mind first, right? And get you to accept that. And Whitney talks about the two-pronged model of basically like, and, and if you look at how all the stuff that we've acquiesced to say over the past 20 years, this is totally true. You have one, you have convenience, right? That's like the carrot and the stick is fear. Like you have to surrender your civil liberties because we're under attack from Muslim extremists, right? So that's the fear. That's the stick. The carrot is like, hey, there's this one app. It does everything. You know, it's like a China WeChat, you know, you can buy stuff. It's just your social media. It's got all your, all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, and we get basically, you know, sloshed back and forth between enticements of convenience and then scared by the, what boogeyman is coming. And then we become in the process less free and more addled by, by, by all this kind of technology. And so I think to me, I guess, I guess the question is, I feel like maybe people in our sort of our, our, our epistemological sphere for Doomer optimism have at least some kind of skepticism about all these digital technologies and internet technologies. But I don't, I don't at all think that it's a trivial problem to figure out how to back out of this. I mean, in a relatively short period of time, we've become accustomed to have these devices in our life. And many of this, like I was saying in my email, you know, I use Dropbox for a bunch of my work and I have Substack and we do podcasts on YouTube and all, you know, like I'm as integrated with this stuff as anybody. And, you know, uh, in some cases it could be like, okay, well, I have all these electronic books that I'd like to have in hardcover form so I can set aside three or four days to print and do all this. And, you know, we're all busy too. And so part of it is like, well, how, how urgent is this problem? And should we, what kind of time scale should we be on if some of, if we're trying to maybe go on a diet from being so connected and so online, um, depending on what you do for a living or, or it could, that could be easier. It could be more difficult. And my sense is for most people nowadays, it's hard. Like it's, we keep getting more integrated, like our cars now, like that's the, like what you hear these stories about this new, whatever electric car from Ford or something. If you don't make your payments, it can repossess itself. Yeah. Or it's connected. Like somebody on the internet can turn your car off when you're driving down the highway. Right. It's like, so, you know, like, 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 like this stuff is happening. And, um, can we just passively resist it or is it going to take more effort and intention to draw some boundaries and say, yeah. I don't want to become that much of a digital slave. Well, and actually this, this kind of dovetails with some stuff um, that I want to have a few podcast episodes on. Um, like you just mentioned with the cars, a lot of people are against this, not only like a uh, digital control over cars, but just like the computerization of cars that makes it, it you, you basically like, are foregoing your right to repair because things are just too complicated or complex. Um, Matt Crawford writes about this and just like things get thrown away because one computer is broken and because everything's just integrated to the point, like an entire car gets thrown away because it's just too comp the, the development of it or the construction of it is just too complex. Um, that's a really hard problem. We just bought a car um, when we just came to Chicago and we got a 2007 car because we like wanted analog an analog car. 
Um, and it's like that eventually that's going to be less and less an option unless you like know somebody who can rebuild an old engine in like a 1950s Chevy or something where the body will stay forever and you just keep re rebuilding the engine. Um, I don't know. And then the other thing I think about something that's come up recently is like AI, AI tutors for children and AI girlfriends and boyfriends. So like, I, I just feel like with this doomer optimism stuff, um, there seems to be like this bifurcation happening where like one group is just like just just gotten gotten their disgust <laughs> meter turned up in a good way and have the ability to like have skepticism and take this precautionary principle toward all these new things. Um, and probably many of us are much more enmeshed than we even want to be. And then sort of just like looked up one day and are like, I'm stuck in this system. I don't want to be reliant upon these things. I don't want to like Google everything that I don't know the answer to. It would be nice to have like have knowledge in my brain and not just relying on looking it up. Um, and yeah, and then another group who just is like, yeah, cool. AI girlfriend. Great. Now I don't have to go get a real girlfriend or teach my kids. I'll just have. AI lie to my kids <laughs> and, and then those I, I was making fun of this and somebody was like well teachers lie to kids all the time it's like oh my god like the AI just lies as a matter of course I, I don't know if any of you have used chat GPT but it, well it doesn't lie I mean the thing is that it doesn't have any truth function whatsoever right like, it doesn't think computers right. can't think thinking is at least partially metabolic so it's impossible for a computer to think all it does is it comes up with the most plausible following sequence of words to the previous input. Yeah. And so there's no truth function whatsoever. It doesn't intentionally lie because it can't. It just doesn't. True or untrue is just not a part of its function. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, I think the idea that there's like, um, like people in charge dumbing us down is a very pleasant fantasy because it's it's a fantasy of 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 competence and intentionality. Yeah, I agree the, with you. The actual situation is way more decentralized and chaotic and we're <laughs> we're choosing and accepting these things not yeah um so there's certainly lots of companies selling things uh which are harming us. That's certainly true. Um, but I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think it's being orchestrated. I, I think having like, um, well, I don't know, uh, it's possible I'm wrong about that, but I, nonetheless, I think there should be a lot of urgency because we're talking about our lives and lives, our children. And, you know, there's no, like, to me, there's no, like, what are we, what could you possibly be waiting for? Like, if, if you accept that um a uh, smartphone for example is 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 spiritually intellectually cognitively destructive why would you have one that's you just can get just get rid of it there's no you you can buy a flip phone for 200 bucks for 50 bucks there's no there's no nothing stopping anyone from doing that if we accept that Twitter is <clears throat> destroying us intellectually, spiritually, whatever. There's no, you know, there's nothing to stop. You can just, you just stop. 
I, I don't I mean at some point you have to take responsibility for your life, right? So that's like, I think it's a doomer optimism thing. That you can't wait for someone like if you can't wait for someone or you can't wait for something to happen. So the AI girlfriend, I don't know, the AI stuff seems really overblown to me. Like it seems to produce really bad writing and ugly visuals. Um like the I don't know how what, what an AI girlfriend would mean. Um it's or like what that, an AI tutor like what a, an AI tutor would mean. Yeah, it's like a cartoon that talks and responds. It's like the movie Her. But why yeah, I don't understand why that would be like it it's the point it, it at the point at which that becomes appealing to someone it seems like so much damage has already been done. <laughs> Well, that's like a lot of people, though. I mean, people are going in that direction, and that to me, I'm like, um, how do we? How, how are well, we like the metaverse was a total failure. Yeah, that's true. It had almost no adoption. That's um, true. And that's I think true. they it cost Facebook billions of dollars. It just down the drain. It was a business venture. I don't think the headsets, the VR headsets, have become profitable yet either. I think yeah. they've lost. I think those have been a, and those have been like attempted to roll out i don't know this is like several iterations i feel like 10 years ago the headsets that were a thing that were attempted so and it seems like there's a big market push for at least on the high-end stuff to be not away from all of this also is it just a reality um the cars are bad it seems like just bad engineering they yeah. don't you know um so yeah, we're gonna be stuck buying 2014 Toyotas forever. <laughs> uh, or some car company comes out with like a, a dumb analog car, and everybody. Well, Toyota it. built the ten thousand dollar pickup that they're rolling out in, um, in a lot of markets. It doesn't have you know like airbags and stuff. It's not road legal in the United States, <laughs> but I mean, I think that the Toyotas are only. <laughs> our only hope to some degree so i don't know josh how that sounds to you but it seems like actually the situation is extremely urgent and dire but maybe not for the reasons um some of the reasons you were saying at least in my mind but to me the situation is really urgent and dire just because i know that for myself like i can notice my own decline and you can it's you can just see it everywhere uh, I think, um, and the, there's a sort of bifurcation happening where, like, there are a lot of forest schools in my town, where there's some kids who are spending time, like, all day out in the woods and building fires and doing knives and, you know, um, like, I run a little hiking club for homeschool kids here, and that sounds, that and sounds then some of the kids are on screens all day, and I'm, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. There's this bifurcation happening where it's like some people are willingly nuking their own children's ability to think and attend to anything a lot as well as their own and then some people are going in another direction um yeah i i mean a few things that's interesting there one is that reminds me of an anecdote that i heard about how in silicon valley there's loads of waldorf schools and schools that don't allow screens and internet for the kids of the people who make that stuff you know so i think you're right about this bifurcation like for the masses we're going to basically give you these digital deadening drugs you know my kids and so then you know then you'll see who gets opportunities and stuff in the future and who is just sort of herded into these 
these farms of people becoming in increasingly more more brain dead. Um, one thing you mentioned, Donald, was that okay, if you see that this technology is harming you or it's bad or what, like you can just stop. You can just stop. Yeah, I totally agree, and I'm also totally like actually no, that's really hard. You know, like I, I could I could go into my reasons for continuing to be online and use these technologies, and most of it has to do with the work, that, uh, my work, my research, writing a book on water treatment, and, and needing to connect with colleagues, and so I have all the reasons. So at the same time that yes, I recognize how it's damaging. Yes, I recognize how I want to get away from it. I'm still also hooked into it. And on one hand, it's just like you just walk away, quick cold turkey. I think you're totally right. But I'm also like, that's also hard. And like a lot of people are not doing that. And so I guess my questions are like, how do we make it easier? How do we make it easier for people to do things that are better? How do I how, how do we make it easier for me to do things that are better for me? You know, maybe we need I feel to like do we're going in the direction of technology of like we're getting more and more and more and more integrated and more and more and more pulled in. And I'm kind of going, well, I don't know if I want to be pulled in this much, but I don't. But I'm also like, I don't know, like I'm not ready to totally quit right now, but um, I don't know. Is it something like, you know, uh, we have an OK, we have there, you create a five year plan. Here's a five year plan to become Internet free. <laughs> I'm going to be internet free in five years. And here's the steps. Here's what I have to. Here's how I have to rearrange my life. And my here's what I have to put in place. Here's what I have to wind down. And is it like, you know, the Dave it, Ramsey? Yeah, huh? yeah. Dave oh, Ramsey of yeah. tech. Uh, yeah, oh, okay, Ramsey. here it is. Yeah. All right. So the Dave Ramsey thing is you list all your debts on the wall, smallest to biggest, okay, and you uh, you pay them off in that order. That's the Dave Ramsey thing. Like what you build a six month store of cash. You you pay make minimum payments while you build your six month thing of cash, and then you pay your debts off smallest to largest. That's the Dave Ramsey tech. So we should uh, do that with thing. tech. So the tech thing. Uh, I don't know what it would be. You list your tech addiction, smallest to largest, and then just go down the list. I don't know. It's that it's doing something hard is good for you. You know, I, I don't know. It shouldn't. Why? I don't know why it should be easy. If you're addicted to something, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. You know, you'll start twitching and you'll wake up in the night to vomit or whatever. I don't know. I, uh, people, uh, getting off drugs do, and I guess I don't sleep. They just. His twitch and their skin crawls and stuff. That's probably good, you know. Um, okay, can I um, ask a, a sort of go a slightly different direction question? Um, <clears throat> okay, so I'm thinking about like um, the preservation of knowledge uh, and like monasteries. And I've always, first of all, I, I just want to say when we're talking about this stuff, I, I do think that it all, doesn't also it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Like the conversation around homesteading, for example, people are like, you want me to be a, to be a subsistence farmer? It's like you can get chickens without then quitting your job and like trying to eat your a whole diet from the land. So um, it could be kind of how preppers do. Um, they kind of have two selves. They have their like normal outward facing self that just pretends that everything is normal to most people. And then they have their other self, which is just like in in the worst case scenario, I'm thinking through like planning for the worst and hoping for the best. And you can have those two things. Like <clears throat> I have to have a, a smartphone for two-factor authentication for my job, but I could just put that smartphone next to my computer and only access it when I'm doing that two-factor authentication thing for my work. And otherwise I want to get a landline. It's the other thing that's really fun about this is like, 
sorry, I started one topic, but I'm going to just jump on this real quick. My, my daughters um, over at my in-laws, they have a landline still. And whenever it rings, they like run to it. And then they're like, you know, the Fitzgerald home and like, just that is so fun. And I remember it as a kid and like so many kids are being deprived of that, like fun um, answering for a household, you know, and then finding the person who's who's being called for, as opposed to everything being this like private one-to-one conversation on a, on a smartphone. So I want to do um, something like that. I want to just integrate these more, you know, these simpler technologies into my life as a sort of like parallel to parallel systems. Um, so I'm gonna think we could think through that question, but I mean, also thinking through the preservation of knowledge question, you know, I guess a model is the dark ages and the monasteries and the sort of reproduction of books um, with monks. Um, a lot of times they were, I think, writing a lot of those books or reproducing them. Um, and not even really knowing or caring that much about what that was in them. But instead it was just sort of like, this is the place where this knowledge gets preserved. And so we're gonna make these. Um, I worry about the, the amount of knowledge that's been created since modernity, like just the amount of books and like how to pick between content. And then I also worry about the loss of traditional knowledge a lot. And that's a lot of what this podcast is about. like making sure we preserve things and not throw away uh, ways of knowing just because they're old. Um, something that comes to mind that's not just uh, book knowledge, but we're um, working on renovating this house in Chicago and we did some construction in, in Uruguay. And like in Uruguay, a lot of people young to old know a lot of building skills, but in, in Chicago, it's like either the boomer and above guys or like the recent immigrants know how to do construction stuff, but like nobody really in between. Um, and I worry about the loss of those skills. Like people aren't really interested in them and not just the trades, but like pe- being able to like take care of your own home, you know, basic home maintenance or, you know, skills like just woodworking or basic plumbing, basic o- electricity, you know. So something, actually something that came to mind when I was thinking, proposing this as a conversation and thinking about like in particular ways, it's hard. Like I've become accustomed to using things. So like you're saying, okay, you want to fix something on your house or your car or something. And you know, that's not commonplace. Dude, YouTube is amazing. Right. You know, how many things, my wife has a 1999 Honda Civic and it's, you know, parts of it falling apart. Like you'd expect a 1999 Honda Civic. And we fixed that thing over and over and over again. How many times are you like find a YouTube video where somebody fixed that exact thing and figure it out from that? And then so that's, that's, a, that's we're, an we're awesome like resource. Cool enough to upload it, which is super nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I so I mean there there is a, I mean I guess whatever I guess I could figure it out if I didn't have YouTube. But there's it's 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 really I, I'm on one hand I'm like totally I'm like the internet's frightening and AI girlfriends and all this stuff. On the other hand I'm like. YouTube for fixing your car. Oh my God. It's so yeah. great. Well, that's appropriate yeah. technology for the question at hand. I like watching videos of guys building uh, cabins. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. That's a good job. I got to build me a cabin. Mm-hmm. The way the ways that they do um, foundations are really, there's a lot of really interesting ways for a lighter weight building that you can do foundations that doesn't involve, you know, having to pour concrete or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like cob building and 
there's a lot of really interesting ways to build uh, a building. Yeah, I think I mean the monastery is interesting. I think that that the that history is is you know it wasn't it the dark ages weren't as dark I think as they're often made out to be, and and the information stuff wasn't as passive. I mean, monastic life. There's so many. You know, monasticism not entirely disappeared in the West. Uh, it's disappeared way more. So, uh, <clears throat> but like reading aloud is a big part of monastic life, like spiritual mm -hmm. reading aloud um, during meals. Like there's a lot of things, you know, um, in terms of like the preservation, sharing of knowledge. Um, but I think sort of the path forward for us now, I mean, monasteries are good. Um, I don't really think that that's, I think that like the, the monasteries serve a really important spiritual uh, role in the church. Um, but I think in terms of preserving knowledge, I think it's gonna, it's really about private, like private ownership of books <clears throat> and private correspondence. I think that that, I think that is where it's going to end. It's this is a returning to an old, to returning to something old, like the front back to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. A lot of that emerged through private correspondence and then also um, like intellectual societies were the other um, like big thing that were outside of universities. So I think though I think that those things um, are where I would where I would look of, of not through big nonprofits or libraries or universities or foundations, all of which are sort of easily distracted and captured by political actors, um, but uh, books are incredibly cheap now like incredibly cheap old books are incredibly cheap mm -hmm. especially on a historical scale there's really nothing stopping anyone who wants to from putting together a, a good library even on a really small budget you can do it if you're if you're um diligent about it library book sales and other things and you can build up a library of books and um but again, if you don't, if your mind, if you don't have the ability to hold your attention on a written page, then having all the lot books in the world doesn't really matter. Mm. So it seems like a combination of, of, you know, making, putting books in your home, um, to have that distributed, you know, so it's distributed across lots and lots of people. And then um, I think writing each other and thinking through, like reading together and writing to each other. I think, you know, it sounds small, but sort of had to build build things up a little, sort of one person at a time and, you know, work yeah, on, so on ourselves I... in the same way that we've talked about the sort of barbell strategy for um, relearning skills about growing food and building yep. things. I have uh, two clarifying questions for you, Donald. I want you to envision right now, and in, in the best case scenario, in your wildest dreams, what would a uh, 
what would a network of private libraries like look like, feel like? I mean, is this like neo neo post-enlightenment royal society? You and I talked about that model of these like intellectuals who are just like, they're like sharing ideas with each other, also fighting all the time, which I love <laughs> because it's not it's not fun unless there's some kind of suffering involved. It can't just all be good. Um, and then the other question I have for you, first, I want to know those like a, a, something something detailed, some some vision from you. But then also my my other question is a question of curation I brought up before, like which books? Because like not all books are created equal and you're the book guy. Um, and I don't know how we even start to sift through the amount of things that have been written and we have access to. So those yeah, are the, so the second question first, most books are really bad and we won't miss them at all. I know. Like, the vast I, majority I, of books are just garbage. Um, so which books? I mean, I think it's it's going to be idiosyncratic and depending on who you are and where you are and what you're doing. But, you know, the more you read, the more you just, you know, books are to talk to each other and, you know, and then you learn to trust certain publishers and certain writers. Um, I think that one of the clearest signs of decline is to look at reference works, which used to be really well written and interesting. So like dictionaries, for example, I love the 1913 edition of Webster's. It's great. Um, but modern like contemporary dictionary is pretty lousy. So, um, so yeah, in terms of which books, I mean, I don't know. You just follow. You just follow your follow your interests. And I think my dream, like the ideal scenario, is clusters of friends working on things together, mm. and working on things both like practically and intellectually, and and trading ideas and writing to each other. And it's not sort of one big thing like the the Republic of Letters. And, you know, we we talk about them as a single event in retrospect. But at the moment, it was individual friendships and clusters of friendships and so on. So. Um, <clears throat> and private libraries, I mean, it's just living rooms, you know, and. Um, but Bill, you know, sort of. Uh. uh Oh, the book is downstairs. Okay, I can't, I can't grab it. But the I was reading this anthology of World War One poetry, um, and I think Blunden wrote the preface. Who was the he was a um, professor of poetry at Oxford, but he fought in the war, and he writes about you know walking through the trenches one day and coming across a random unnamed private writing a poem, and that this was totally normal. That we know the sort of famous World War One poets, that generation of poets, really famous, but. That poetry was just written by lots and lots and lots of soldiers. That was just part of the culture. That his commanding officer would insist that he read his poems to him, and then would because he knew something about poetry, he would be ordered to do teach classes of poetry um, to the other soldiers in his unit. And uh, you know, all of that's been lost. Um, that sort of vernacular literary culture. Um, but, you know, it's not necessarily lost forever. And um, the only way to, to, to bring it back is to, to work on poems and to, to read poems and to write them and to, you know, 
remember our language and and pay attention to it um and and not you know accept that the language will just be defined by um advertising advertisements and government notices or something mm -hmm. uh so yeah we just had to I don't know. I don't think there's sort of like a grand strategy. I think thinking in those terms is probably unhelpful in some way. No, but I think I think not thinking about the plan, like the Dave Ramsey style, but thinking about the the endpoint vision that's like exciting. I, I I get excited about that. And then I while you were talking, I was thinking like having a good life. It, like the endpoint yeah. is like is like having. But what a, is that? Like, like what are the details of that? Because then that informs like what the first the obvious first steps would be. So like when you were talking, I was thinking. Um, what books can be informed by your like little private networks and friendships? And obviously, you know, you, you, we've had book clubs together, you've recommended books. Um, so then it could be one of those things where maybe we take it, um, a step further and, you know, it's your book, you write your name in it, but you send it to me and you've got little annotations in there and you don't, I don't know if you care if people write in your books, but if I write little notes and then send it back to you and then you've got my notes and then it like goes between our networks. And you can see who who like what they were thinking that your friends were thinking as they were sounds reading. like a great way to lose your books. No, you no, we're gonna be good. We're gonna send them back. <laughs> media mail. And I don't know, I just like or you write a little note with it, send it back with a mm -hmm. little insight. You know So here's a here's a couple things going on that are kind of nice. Do you all know about the Catherine Project? I don't think so. So Zena Hit started the Catherine Project, she's a tutor at St. John's College. It's free seminars and reading groups on great books for lack of a better word uh so i'm leading one this starting in a couple weeks on wendell berry's fiction oh, we're nice. gonna read a thousand pages of wendell berry fiction in 10 weeks it's gonna be oh, awesome wow. but it you know you um you can look up the catherine project i think the this current round of reading groups is all full but um they do them throughout the year and it's you know hundreds of people are participating and uh just reading books together i did one last year on read ulysses with a group of people that was interesting and i think there's lots of little things like that i think that's fine you know it's it's digital it's the, the some of the catherine project groups are in person um and so that's great i'm glad Zena put it together um but I think just even just reading, inviting friends to read with you and to think through things. Or but, your you know, kids. Yeah. And they, that's a whole nother subject. Read out loud but, together. Like, I, I like leaving um, answering uh, machine messages of poems uh, <laughs> to friends. And I was like reading a Jeffrey Hill poem to a friend's answering machine the other day. And my daughter heard me and she ran up to her room and wrote on a notebook, Hazel's Book of Poems. You know, and so now she's putting together her little book of poems. So, you know, it's like you what you value and pay attention to your kids pick up on that. They won't pick up on it if you preach to them about why this is important, but don't actually care about it. You know, but if you actually care about something and attend to it in your life. Josh, I'm sorry, I've been uh, interviewing Donald. Uh, yeah, I bogarted this. I'm yeah, sorry. You go, you, you go now, Josh. What have you been thinking about? Uh, I have a few questions, I guess. Um, 
something you said, Donald, struck me as really anti the progress narrative where you're talking about the level of literacy of World War One soldiers. Mm. And and you've taught you've mentioned a number of things that you've seen in decline and loss. And I feel I'm having another conversation with an old friend and uh, who's a, more in the sort of normie academia. And it's so it's so it's so difficult and predictable, <laughs> you know, but the, but it's I feel like that progress narrative is just embedded everywhere. You know, that the past was just worse. You know, there's no way we could have gotten worse now. I wonder how often you run into that kind of thing. And then I wanted to mention one brief kind of funny anecdote, Ashley, when you were talking about having a landline and running to answer the phone. I still have this habit that makes no sense at all now, but it's from growing up in a house with a landline phone before caller ID and and, and all that. And if the phone rings, I pick it up. I go, hello, who's there? You know, whereas it says right there, actually, you called me. It says right there is Ashley. I'm like, hello, who is it? Or hi, I, this is Josh. Hi, this is I just insist on hello. Yeah, I you know. know. It's not a mystery. It's not a mystery anymore. Mystery but I feel like I, I feel if you call me and I'm like, hey, Ashley, I feel like that's rude somehow that I identify. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just weird, but. I no, to... no, the mystery is fun. And actually, so my girls are still young enough that they don't really understand like how the phone works. And most of the phone calls, sadly, that they get on the landline are either immediate family or. Uh, spam whatever you know sales calls um but my my husband called the girls and he was like hello this is john from the cable company and the girls i mean just prank calls the girls didn't know what that was like it's the cable company like they're calling their grandparents like it's the cable company Um, (laughs) that kind of fun stuff i don't know i just feel like there's so much like i don't know mystery surprise joy then you have to like numbers yeah and talk to your um Talk to your family members. Go find them. You know, go run after them as opposed to having the thing on you all the time. You can be like separated from the technology. Someone can come find you if it's important, if it's urgent enough. You know. Do you two know the novel uh, "A Man" by Oriana Falacci? So it's a um, it's a novel about um, Alexandros Panagoulis, who was a Greek poet who attempted to assassinate the dictator in Greece and the assassination failed and he was imprisoned and tortured for a long time and he escaped from prison multiple times he's an interesting man um but after he got out like landline telephones were one of the joys of his life and he would always he would have like multiple landlines and he would always try to get calls or call people in the most far-flung places possible like to call someone in Japan was like the great you know but he would answer the phone Hello, it is I. It is me. <laughs> and he would just be so excited to get uh, phone calls, and that's always stuck with me. Yeah, yeah. I still have a landline. I don't know. I like I like you talking on the phone a lot. Oh yeah. Okay, so we're gonna work on getting one here. I think it's it's important. It'll be really fun. Um, yeah, I don't know. Landline I'm... telephone, if it's an actual landline telephone, also works when the power's out. Right. It's actually connected. Um. And... Same with radio, you know, you can get radios. Uh, if you're going to really go down the post-digital life communication, you know, radios is really like shortwave radios and Baofangs and stuff. Um, definitely. I, but for me, I, I love, I think it's, those are really fun. Those little handheld radios and um, like ham radios. There's like, the whole, that's like a whole subculture oh, yeah. 
of people too, which is fun, which is, it's something fun to learn too, the technology. And I guess um, like the, like the homesteading stuff, it's just uh, another level of skills that you're giving yourself in whatever case, you know, where you might need it. Um, you have the technology there to use. And then it's fun in the meantime, I guess that's the, the takeaway that you don't have to wait for the calamity to do these things that are fun and um, lower tech and sort of solution, you know, solutions to these problems have already existed. We can go back to them and use them sort of parallel. Um, Josh, is there is there anything else that other kind of topics you've been thinking about um, that you wanted to just ruminate on on this episode before we wrap up? Um, I was just, yeah, I, I was trying to see if there was, uh, like, it, it seems like a topic that's coming to the surface is the importance of having everybody having their own library of books that mean something to them, whether for practical reasons or, or intellectual development reasons or whatever, that that's seems like a practical outcome. Um, I guess, I, I mean, I, I was very reactive in, in thinking about this and putting it together. And it was mainly coming from a place of shit, I'm really busy. I've got a lot of stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And now do I have to think seriously about, okay, I need to start going through and creating offline repositories of all the stuff that I'm working on. Uh, you know, and, 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 and beyond that, like the YouTube videos of how to repair your Honda Civic and all of that kind of stuff, because in anticipation of some kind of calamity, that's going to make things difficult. You know, and I was kind of panicked, like, does this need to be a priority or what do other people think? You know, do other people want to shoot down this idea or have they already thought about it and come up with an idea? So I feel like this community of people that have we have podcasts and discussions and stuff like that. And we're a lot of us on the same page in a lot of important ways. Maybe together we devise a recommendation or a plan or advice or something. Uh, that people could. So I, I really, I, I guess I didn't have a target. I was more like, I want to see what emerges when we talk about this digital prepping, I think is a great way to put it. The yeah. idea that like the online landscape may be changing and it may be changing rap more rapidly than we expect, or it may be like more and more people are just like, I want to kind of start to disentangle myself from, from dependencies on all this stuff. How do you go about doing that? And I felt like that 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 enough would be enough to spark interesting thoughts. So, Definitely. I think the calamity has already happened. Mm. It's sort of like I was a friend of mine in Indiana. He's like, "Yeah, the apocalypse already happened here. There's no topsoil. Mm. Like it's just gone." Yeah. So yeah, yeah. With the uh, petroleum fertilizer, you can keep growing corn forever, but the topsoil is gone. Like that that the it already had like that already happened there's no is there a way back yeah it's gonna be hard you know you can rebuild that but it's gonna be really hard mm -hmm. um and it's gonna you know a lot of things will have to change and i think so in terms of like what's happened to us like the digital impact on us that calamity's already happened and in some ways a sort of acute calamity like you're describing i think would be salutary I think it would be great in in many ways. Clarifying, because um, it would be clarifying, um, and for that reason, I think it's unlikely. But uh, I think we're just going to have more muddled mess and confusion rather than clarity. But um, 
like just to toss out a couple other ideas um, in terms of, you know, there's um, like keeping of notebooks, I think is really uh, something to think about. Um, so there's all these lots of different types of notebooks and like ways of thinking that have been largely lost. So a commonplace book, you know, you have a notebook and you 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 divide it up into topics. Then as you read things, you pull you write down quotations from what you're reading that fits into those topics is like a way to, to think about and organize information um, that was commonplace, uh, commonplace, huh? the commonplace book was commonplace. It was, a, you know, a standard way of, of doing things in the West for a very long time. Um, and, you know, miscellany books and nature journals and <clears throat> relearning how to draw, you know, uh, these, like, I think notebook keeping, um and it's a surprisingly vast subject um i was just reading um uh lori bestwater so you can't see anything because it's blurred but she wrote a book called the living page which is just excavating the history of all the different types of notebooks that charlotte mason would mm -hmm. have her students keep and there's tons of different <laughs> notebooks and ways to keep notebooks so um I think the way that we like record information, the way that we organize it um, changes how we think, mm. you know, like the way we organize our libraries. Like, I don't know about you, Josh, but I've never read a digital book cover to cover once in my life. I probably, you know, I'm sure I have a million PDFs from JSTOR and other things, and I've, I've read articles, but I think it's not a good way to read. So I don't think I would lose anything if, all that, if I lost it all in some way, you know, that there's, um, but, uh, but probably, you know, if I, it's like, oh, there's actually really good stuff here to come up with a way beyond just preserving it from calamity, but how can I make this information actually usable and readable? And I don't think there's just going to be one answer to that. Mm. Um, I think like three ring binders probably would be pretty good, you know, uh, and a local copy shop should be able to print and put holes in paper for you for real cheap. Um, so that in notebooks, I think there's lots of things like that we can think about. Um, and thankfully, you know, the we both have lots of historical examples of what these looked like in archives and lots of writing about how to keep them. So, uh, yeah, notebooks. I've been thinking a lot about notebooks. I think this is going to be a big year for me for notebook keeping. Um, I do a five-year journal. I'm very excited. I'm almost through five years. I'm going to get a 10-year journal that's even like more massive. You know, it's like just little things like that to kind of, it's interesting to see, oh, this is what I was doing today, three years ago, and mm -hmm. preserving memory that way. Um, pen and paper, pencil and paper, very, you know, there's really nothing stopping us from doing these things, like buying pencils and notebooks, very cheap. Hmm. Um, I have a couple of uh, thoughts to your prompt, Josh. Um, the, the first thing is, I think what is most urgent is how we raise our children, because hmm. we could really set them up for a lifetime of like addiction and inability to think. And, you know, like basically the worst thing we've all experienced in our, you know, movement from the 90s to the 2000s to now um, but just starting them off like that is really just such a disservice um, 
whereas it it will be a huge gift to your children, anyone listening to this who has children, to not start them off with a life where they are like so digitally embedded. And I know that's going to be tough because like a lot of their peers will be, um, but you know, you're better. <laughs> I'm not, like I, I don't know if this is snobby to say, but like, sorry, we're going to just have different norms than those people. And you know, you're going to be better off for it. So that's just what we're going to do. Um, and I think some of the, the ideas Donald had, um, not just the notebooks, like encouraging children, especially and doing it with them, nature journals, travel logs are so fun to keep, especially like family, um, the letters between people that could be part of our little network where I know Donald sends letters. I want to start sending letters now that I'm here in the U.S. because if I sent it from Uruguay, sometimes they didn't make, make it or, or make them back. Um, Neil Clark does this family illustration every year. Each year, his family does one big illustration together on a, on a large piece of paper, and it has the four seasons, and they draw pictures of themselves and the things they did that season. And they, they complete it around Christmas, and they put it in like a, you know, an art binder. Um, family songs, my, my kids make up songs all the time um, based on folk tunes and, and other tunes, family poetry you know, just sort of like reviving this culture of creation, like as part of daily life, I think is really nice. Um, and then I would just say the other thing that I was thinking of that can be ongoing with Zoomer Optimism is um, sharing our, our, our ideas for what is a worthy inclusion to a Doomer Optimism library. And wait, maybe we can start thinking about how to, to make a list that then informs like a, a digital list that then informs something physical. But people, a lot of people have asked me like, what's a Doomer Optimism library? And it's not just like, uh, you know, it's like, you know, Greer and Kunstler and all the collapsitarians, but it's also like the Foxfire books and John Seymour, the self-sufficient life and how to live it. Um, but then like, there's other things that I think a lot of us are surprised to find out each other have read and were influenced by. Um, so thinking about like maybe just having a, a shared library would be a cool follow on project to this this recording. And I think all the like the five star books and John Seymour, I would love to have someone on the podcast who read the John Seymour book and tried to do his five acre plan, like to the letter, you know, tried and to we, do we it. In, we in, like included some of the stuff, but it was like pick it, you know, pick and choose what works. Sure. But I would just love to meet someone who really <laughs> like read that book and said, okay, I'm going to do the whole thing. plan and then hear how it went. I would love to talk to if anyone out there tried that and succeeded or failed. I don't care if you succeeded or failed, but if you really went for it, I'd love to talk to you. Um, or the one plan. Books... He's got the different plans. Anyway. Oh, totally. I just want one, you know, like someone who's like, okay, I have the, I have this some acres. And I'm going to do the plan. John Seymour plan for my yeah. acreage. Um, I think all those books are super important. And then you have the whole, you know, agrarian tradition, you know, Cobbett and uh, all those guys. Um, but I think that the, the like poetry and so on is, is just as important, actually. And I think that's the part that's often missed. You, you know, you get, <clears throat> you know, people have like all those things or like the Chelsea Green catalog, you know, or um, all, all of which is great. Um, and, uh, but I think having the the recovering, yeah, recovering the sort of our literary heritage is just um, 
And you often, you know, you see these great books lists where it's like, oh, yes, you should read Homer and Aeschylus and Sophocles and so on, which certainly, like, I I love all of that. Um, but I think the lists oftentimes can be counterproductive in a way because there's sort of too many books on them mm. or they're sort of, um, I don't know. They yeah, there's it's the same overwhelming maybe in a sense. I yeah, mean, overwhelming. Part of, it is, like, part of it is you we want to curate, but not to the point that everybody's just tossing everything in. Or maybe it's Donald's list and Ashley's list, and you can go. But it's the it. same. It's always the same books over and over again, which makes sense because some of these books are so you know important. But it'd be nice to see different, um, some different things. Yeah. Uh, and then. You know, we just finished the Christmas season. I think one of the reasons Christmas is so wonderful, there's a lot of reasons, but it's that it's the only time left when we all know the same songs. Mm. When everyone can sing along to the same songs, but that used to be the whole year. So we, you know, we were singing, my girls and I were singing at lunch the other day, and um, I'm not a very good singer, but I like to sing. And, you know, we were singing like, you know, I've been working on the railroad and songs yeah, like that. Yeah, we sang that yesterday. So there's like the American Songbook and all that, you know, there's... um. So I love that Ashley that your that your girls make up songs. That's great. Uh, mine do too. That I can't really. I don't know how to. I can't make sense of them enough. To <laughs> my my youngest, um, she couldn't remember what it was. So and now we sing it this way. She says, uh, "Deck the halls with fa la lolly." <laughs> so now that's just the way we sing it in our family. Um, what was the other one? It was um oh in the pines, uh Neil Clark, the in the pines. Um they Oh the recording is amazing, yeah. Yeah, they changed it to like about our chickens, like in the coop, in the coop, where the chickens go poop or something like that. <laughs> um, you know, that kind of stuff. Also from the 90s, we taught them this. I don't know if you guys know this or if it was a Chicago thing, Jingle Bells Batman smells. Oh yeah. So my girls sing that and they have no idea who Batman is. That is a, a, a totally absent referent that make, but they nonetheless, they do the bat Robin laid an egg, like yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. I don't think they have any idea to what that refers and they still love it, which is yeah. amazing. Um, so not to, yeah, we, we also have instilled, maybe it's trashy. I don't know, but the nineties culture um, that we were teaching them what yo mama jokes were obviously keeping it clean oh. and, my three-year-old didn't understand. So she was like, um, the older girls were trying to do like insults and the three-year-old was like, your mama's so beautiful. I love her. <laughs> that, was like, that was the sweetest thing. We listened to said. a lot of Alan Jackson Christmas CDs this year for whatever reason. Every year I go to the library and I get a big stack of Christmas CDs and I try to mix it up with like Christmas with the Rat Pack and, you know. Nice. So anyway, Alan Jackson got country Christmas CDs and so my older daughter's singing, please, daddy, don't get drunk this Christmas. Like she, <laughs> that's the song that she really, uh, really learned. And uh, she also likes the tombstone every mile, of course, which oh, is yeah. the like, optimism theme songs, but it's pretty funny listening to her. Yeah. You know, sing no about truckers dying in Northern Maine or whatever. Yeah. On the icy roads. On the um, icy roads. Yeah, this is great. I mean, so I mean, part part of the the do thing is just to try to think about like different and more fun ways of doing things too that aren't just like the monotony of of our, it's not just necessarily the the crisis, but the the fun stuff too. Renewal comes uh... person by person, <laughs> by family. It's mm -hmm. not 
it's not doesn't come from on high doesn't come when the government is exactly what you want it to be it doesn't come when the apocalypse happens it just happens person by person family by family and if the whole thing doesn't work out it's all right you had a good life and that <laughs> that's perfect it's a perfect note to end on well thanks for Josh, um, i cut you off i'm sorry no no it's okay it's right. uh josh any any final thoughts before we end up no, I think it's good. I got a lot to think about. And I hope we have more conversations, especially about ways to adopt this into family life and kids growing up. Mm. Um, I think I'll I'll need help with that and, and, and encouragement, you know, because it's easy to just get busy with stuff and let a lot of stuff slide. But I've heard a lot of good ideas from you guys that I want to try to do. My kid is just a little over one. Mm -hmm. So just getting started. Yeah, it'll be it'll start to get crazy coming up in the, this year oh man that year between one and two is so good it's so it is just a magical year it's so good <laughs> all right um this was great talk to y'all <laughs>